Let's get into the Word tonight. Let's look at Judges chapter 2. So let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Now before we get started with Judges chapter 2, I must confess that this message tonight and, and the content that we're really covering in the Word of God is very, it can be a little discouraging because we're looking at really the failure of Israel and we're going to look at some of the difficult things that they had to go through and the difficult lessons that they had to learn and the book of Judges as you know is a book of it's like an emotional roller coaster because the, the book kind of goes like this it's, it literally is like a roller coaster where the children of Israel they they sin and then God uh, brings their enemies against them and brings them sometimes into captivity to those enemies. And then the children of Israel cry out in their fear and their angst. And then the Lord raises up a deliverer, literally a judge, which is the name of the book. It can mean savior. It can mean um, uh, a savior or a, uh, a judge or um, I forget the other word, a savior, a deliverer, basically. And, and so... The children of Israel going through this process of, of these ups and downs. And, and as I was really praying about this message tonight and our time in the Word, I was thinking of how similar it is right now in our country. If you remember 9-11, um, let me see how many years ago, 17, I know it's 19 years ago now. Can you believe it? 19 years ago. We had that incident in our uh in our history and it really changed us didn't it and I remember that day very well as we all do and I remember being here at the church and the church was packed with people coming in and wanting to know what was going on and and, and kinda of sensing that something was brooding something was very serious that was going on and the country's heart and their back was broken for a time and but it wasn't long after we started getting back into the swing of things that we kinda of forgot and then we continued going back into our normal routines of things after the initial scare and the and the angst was over with we kinda just went back to business as usual and here we are with another incident in our country's history that has never happened before in fact I think it's in, in some ways harder than 9-11 in the sense that uh, it's something that's ongoing it's something that didn't just happen and then we're responding and reacting it's something that we're still responding and acting reacting to and it's not an easy thing, but my hope is at the end of this whole thing, you know, because uh, the United States can be going like this. And, I, and I'm not saying that this coronavirus or even 9-11 was some kind of judgment against the church or, or even the United States. It, it could be. I don't really know. I know the Lord is getting people's attention. He certainly got my attention and he's got your attention. But just like the children of Israel going through this thing right now where they're, they're, they have a, a calamity and then, they're, and then they cry out and then God delivers them, I pray that this is one of those situations in our country's history where we cry out and we don't stop crying out. We don't stop. We don't give up. We don't go back to our old ways. That this would be sort of like a, a watershed moment for not only the church but for us Americans. And, and it's not just an American thing, it's a worldwide thing. And we're just part of the whole puzzle, right? But I pray that at the end of this whole thing that we'll have a renewed sense of, uh, of just who God is and uh, of His love and His grace and that we would come away from it having certainly examined our own soul, our own life, 
and really uh, repenting of those things that we know in our life right now that aren't pleasing to Him. And, and that's important for us to do. We can't just continue on and, and act like nothing's happening. So this is going to affect you, and, um, and it should. And so tonight's message is going to be a little hard, I think, uh, perhaps, but um, take it within the context of the children of Israel, although we're living in a, a similar time, but it's not necessarily because of some great thing that we've done wrong. I think there is um, room in all of us to grow, um, and, and I think that's the way we need to take it, is um, whenever these things happen, we need to take them and, and examine our own hearts and then go before the Lord and let Him do what He wants to do in each of us individually and corporately as a country, as a church, whatever He desires to do. That's what I want. I want what He wants out of me for this season, and I pray that you feel the same way. And so we're going to get into that. And also, uh, when we get into Sunday morning, too, we're going to be talking about uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and the church of Ephesus. And that's kind of like a double whammy in a sense because uh, the message tonight is a little gloomy. Uh, but there's also um, Sunday morning where Jesus is talking and uh, dictating a letter to John about a loveless church. And, and that's certainly something that we don't want to become. And I think between tonight's message and Sunday morning, there's a lot there to challenge us. But don't be discouraged. Remember that God loves us. Remember that He has paid the price for us. So don't be despairing. Don't get despondent. Uh, know that your God loves you very much, and uh, His heart for you is for peace and not of evil to bring you a hope and an expected end, an expected end. And you can expect that at the end of whatever God does is good, especially for His bride, the church, of which we all belong. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, let's look at chapter 1. I'm just going to briefly summarize that before we get into chapter 2. Uh, let's see here. Um, As we look at chapter 1 last week, we saw the death of Joshua. And one of the things uh, about the book of jo uh, Judges is the very last chapter of Joshua, which we were just in, really dovetails with the first and second chapter of Judges. So we're going to see some overlap there, and they're going to dovetail very nicely. And then when we get into chapter 3, specifically in verse 7, we're really going to begin uh, the book of Judges, which starts with uh, the judge Othniel. Uh, but let's uh, just review what we looked at in chapter 1. We saw the death of Joshua in chapter 1 and God wanting Judah, setting forth Judah now as the, the leader of all the tribes and sending them into uh, their territory uh, to fight against the Canaanites. And you remember that Simeon uh, they, they all wanted to help each other, Judah and Simeon, even though God had told Judah to go up. And the Lord didn't seem to have a problem with that, although it wasn't His perfect will. And, um, and then we go on, and, um, and we go on into the, uh, the second half of chapter 1 where it talks about them getting into the land, each of the different tribes, and really in verse 27 of chapter 1 really begins this uh, horrible narrative of the history of what happened, and, and that is that each of these different tribes, they were supposed to go in after the big battles had been won. They were supposed to go in now to their own individual inheritances and drive out those small pockets of people that were still in the land, those small pockets of 
Canaanites that were uh, that God told them to destroy, and they didn't do that. And then from verses 27 to the end of uh, chapter one, there we see the different tribes how they did not drive them out. Uh, each of the tribes had their um, their ability to do it, and they chose not to. And um, and so let's get into chapter two here. Chapter 2, let's read down through uh, verse 10, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back and we'll take a look at it. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And so it was, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. And then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they, all, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land." And let's just stop right there and just get right into it here. So let's go back to verse 1. It says, The angel of the Lord uh, came up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, whenever you see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, this is one of those doctrines in the Bible that's really interesting because the angel of the Lord and an angel of the Lord are two different things. In the Bible, whenever you see an angel of the Lord, it could be somebody like the archangel Michael or uh, the angel Gabriel, as for instance, or um, but when it says the angel of the Lord, the definite article there, the angel of the Lord, that means something completely different, and we call that a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ. And throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we're going to see that. And we'll just look at a couple of examples tonight, but this is an important thing to consider because angels are not supposed to receive worship. We know that there's one angel that wasn't God, that wanted to be worshipped, and it got him into a, um, a sticky mess. And his name is Lucifer, right? We know that he wanted to be worshipped, uh, but any angel of God Almighty who has been sent by God, Jehovah God, sent by Jesus Christ, is, is an angel that ought not to be worshipped. But the angel of the Lord is a different story. The angel of the Lord. And we see this in Scripture. If you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. And you can turn there or you can write the reference down. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 15. And this is interesting because we see that this angel of the Lord not only ascribes deity to himself, but is also worshipped by Moses. And this is a serious thing because if this angel is not an angel of God, then we know that uh, this is idolatry. But notice that Moses knew instinctively that this was God Almighty in, in, in human form or in the, in the form of a burning bush. And let's take a look at it and you'll see. It says in uh, verse 2 of Exodus chapter 3, it says, And the angel of the Lord, notice, the angel of the Lord, you might want to underline that, appeared to him, appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And notice in verse 4, 
So when the Lord saw he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, I want you to look at something here in this verse. Notice the, the fourth word in. It says, and so when the Lord, that word is Jehovah. So when Jehovah, Yahweh, when he saw that he, Moses, turned aside and looked, God, notice, called to him from the midst of the burning bush. And so we know that this, uh, this angel of the Lord is deity. It's, it's God Almighty. It's Jesus Christ in a theophany. And notice what happened. And, and, and Moses said, Here I am. And then in verse 5, then he said, uh, The angel of the Lord says, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And moreover, he said, Notice, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. Because the Bible says that no one can look upon God and live. No one can look upon God and his... And, and his because God is a spirit, right? Uh, for us to see Jesus Christ even uh, would be a, a, an awesome sight. But to see God the Father in this flesh that we have, uh, the Bible says that He dwells in unapproachable light. And I love that, that in Him is no darkness at all. And so there's no one that can stand in, in the presence of God the Father in this frame, in this physical body that we have, and live. We would literally just fall apart and disintegrate because of His holiness and the brightness. See, that's why we need a new body. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to an upgrade. <laughs> looking forward to an upgrade. But notice, he says, I am the God of your father. So this angel of the Lord is saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In verse 7, it says, And the Lord says, Surely I have seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Isn't that wonderful that God does know their sorrows? And so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppress them. And so going on down into the chapter there, uh, in verse 13, it says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? So it's a very logical question that Moses asked God. And God tells him, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So this angel of the Lord is none other than Yahweh, God present with them. And we know that if God is present with them, it has to be Jesus. It has to be God and Jesus is God. He's equal with God the Father. Uh, I love Isaiah 9, verse 6. And behold, uh, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then in uh, Isaiah 9, um, unto us a son is born, unto us, uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. This baby will be called Wonderful. This baby will be called Counselor. Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Jesus and the Father 
are one with the Holy Spirit of God. Amazing, amazing to consider. Now turn with me to Judges 2. We'll we'll look at one more and then we'll move on here because this is uh, an important thing to see in the Old Testament. In Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, Judges chapter 6, it's actually within this book. So just turn over a couple pages and we'll be looking at Gideon and looking at verse 11 specifically. And again, underline this, it says, Now the angel of the Lord. So underline the angel of the Lord, because this is another theophany, uh, which is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ. And it makes you wonder, why would he do that? Why would he visit his people before he would be born into the Virgin Mary, before he would be placed supernaturally in her womb? Well, you know, there are certain times in Israel's history when they were floundering, when they were going through difficulties, when God was going to do amazing things in and through them and use them uh, to, uh, to bring judgment upon the nations and to also give them His Word. And so when God felt that it was necessary to intervene in their history to get them to go in a certain direction, He did so. And He didn't ask anybody's, he didn't ask anybody's permission. He just did it. And God did that in my life, and I know perhaps He did that in your life. He never asked me permission to intervene in my life. He came into my life at a really inopportune time. I was very happy and and thought I was happy and was very content going my own way. But I didn't know what God knows, and God had a plan for my life as He has for you. And don't you love that? That He intervened when I didn't ask Him. And that's just because he's like, you know what, Rob, I've got something that's so wonderful for you that you can't, you, you can't, even, you can't even yearn for it. You don't even have the ability to yearn and, and, and comprehend what I want to do through you and what I want to do in your life and how I want to bring my glory about in your life so that others can see my glory. And um, I love that. I, there was no invitation sent. He just showed up. And he does this with the children of Israel here in Judges chapter 6. Look with me at verse 11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord, underline that, came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. We were just there in the valley, uh, the Jezreel Valley, uh, the Jordan Valley, uh, and we were at Mount Gilboa. And just uh, and there's a valley right in between, and then on the other side is some uh, other mountain ranges, and and this is where this this thing took place, and it was kind of interesting to see that, and that's a shameless plug to come to Israel next year, uh, so, <laughs> so, so the angel of the Lord came to him, and the angel of the Lord, verse twelve, appeared to him and said to him, "The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor." God could look into Gideon's heart and see that this young man, this young teenager perhaps at this time, he could see the potential in him that nobody else could see, not even his father could see. And see, that's just how good the Lord is. But notice, Gideon said to him, O my Lord, notice, O my Lord. So he's calling him Lord. If the Lord is with us, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And so, um, and so obviously, we're going we're to go on here. And let's go pick up in verse 19 because now Gideon is so enamored by this angel of the Lord. He knew it was a visitation of God himself and he wanted to worship. He wanted to make an offering to him. 
And so Gideon, verse 19, went in and he prepared a young goat and unleavened bread in an, uh, in a, um, uh, from an ephah, a flour, and the meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them to him, to the angel of the Lord, under the terebinth tree and presented them. Notice, and the angel of God said, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And so this angel is going to receive this offering of worship. And watch what happens. And then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand. And he touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire arose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And so we see again Jesus... And just in his uh, kindness and love and, and knowing certainly what Israel was going to go through and how this victory was necessary for them and how he was going to use a man that was very small in his own sight because Gideon, remember, had to have many proofs to, to know that God was really speaking to him. And we're really no different. Well, oftentimes when God is speaking to us, we may uh, throw out a fleece. I wouldn't encourage you to do that, but even when you do, uh, because of our the frailty of our faith sometimes. And, and God doesn't, He's not upset with us when we struggle, you know. So we don't need to worry about that. But um, sometimes we throw out a fleece and say, Lord, if this is really you, then, you know, cause an ice cream to fall out of the sky in my head. And um, that's kind of a silly thing to ask. Unless it does happen, then that's really big news, especially if it's that Superman ice cream from Perry's. But anyway, I can't hear of any of you laughing. You're probably not laughing. Uh, so anyway, but that's a, an instance of a theophany, another one. And we also see one in Joshua chapter 5 when the commander of the Lord, we're not going to go to that passage, but um, Joshua met that commander of the Lord right before their first battle after crossing the Jordan to go into Israel. Their first battle, remember, was Jericho. And he met the servant or the commander of the Lord, which again is another theophany because the the angel or the commander said, Take off your shoes, uh, Joshua, for the, the ground you're standing on is holy, holy. So going on in verse 1, it says, The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal, Gilgal to Bochim. And Bochim literally means weepers or weeping, and we'll find out why that is. And he said, I led you up. So this angel of the Lord is saying, I led you up out of Egypt, and I brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Who was it that brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt? Well, we know that it was certainly uh, the, the human uh, element of it was Moses and Aaron, uh, but it was, it was Jesus who ultimately led them up out of Egypt. You know, it's been said that behind every good man is a good woman, uh, but more importantly, behind every godly man is who? Is God. It's God Himself. And behind Moses was God. And, um, and it's important that we remember that. But who was the one who led them up out of Egypt? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, I'm going to start in verse 1 though. Moreover, brethren, Paul writes to the Corinthians, do you not, do, uh, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So who was it that led them out? 
Well, the physical man was Moses, but we know that Jesus led them out, and he was that rock that provided for their sustenance all throughout their desert wanderings. And, um, and we looked at the types in, in Joshua and in Deuteronomy where Moses would strike the rock and, and once, and then the water would come out and fulfill the needs of several hundreds of thousands, even a couple million people uh, out of that rock. And so, let's go on here. Verse 2. And he says, I led you from Egypt, verse 1, I'm sorry, and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. And why have you done this? I mean, can you imagine standing before God and having to answer questions? I mean, think of this like a, uh, like a room before a judge, and the judge's platform is way up high, and he's looking down with you with his spectacles, you know, on his nose like this, and he's asking the question, and you know you're guilty. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's a daunting thing to have the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, speaking to you and saying, I told you to do this, and why haven't you done it? I mean, to me, that is a very unnerving thing. And what is it that God told them to do? What was the thing that God told them to do? Uh, you don't have to go there, but let me read it to you. You might just want to write the reference down. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 5. This is something that God spoke to the children of Israel before they even crossed over the Jordan. And He warned them way in advance. So this is uh, as uh, Moses was literally on the... Um, eastern shore of, of the Jordan River as they were hanging out there for some time before they actually crossed over, God gave to uh, the children of Israel these commands. And what was it? In Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess. So he's saying, you guys are about ready to cross over this Jordan River, and once you get over on the other side... And you've cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, notice the confidence of the Lord. They didn't have confidence in themselves, but God knew what they could do. God knew what He could do through them, just as He knows what He can do in and through you and I, even though our confidence may be little, even though our faith may be small. God can do wonderful things in and through us. So he says, and you shall conquer them, and you shall utterly destroy them. Notice the command. This is what you shall do, and you shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. But they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But, this you shall, but, but thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. It's very clear, isn't it? And so God told them in advance. They should have known this. They should have known this. And yet, for some reason... They did not pay attention. They didn't listen to the Lord. And so, you know, obedience is, is very important to the Lord, uh, even if it doesn't make sense to us. If it doesn't make sense to us, we still ought to obey it, even if we don't understand. Even if we don't understand.
you can write down this verse. This is a, a, a passage that as we went through Deuteronomy and Judges, I just kind of hammered into us because it's really important. I might as well read it. It's Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, verses 16 through 18, and it really just says basically the same thing. But notice it's a, it's a commandment, just like it we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 7 just a moment ago. This is even more condensed, and the commandment of God is there and the justification for the commandment. And this is, the, this is the reason why. But God says, verse 16 of Deuteronomy 20, but, as, but of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. Notice, nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And here is the justification for it. I love how God just doesn't say, I want you to do this, but sometimes He gives the reason, and sometimes He doesn't. But when he does, I'm very thankful for that because then I understand. And he certainly does in verse 18. Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods. And you sin against the Lord your God. That's the whole heart of God is he didn't want them to sin against him. It's not that God is so insecure that he has to have full obedience so that it can somehow make his ego feel good. No, let me tell you, God, that there is nothing we can do to God that can tarnish any part of him. He was perfectly well and fine before Genesis 1, verse 1. Before he even spoke anything into existence. He wasn't um, uh, lonely and needed a friend. God was very comfortable being who he is. I, I, I don't understand it. And then that's, what, that's, what, that's where our worship begins, right? Because I don't understand. He, he's so big and so awesome. and uh, I can't imagine who this being really is. And yet we, we get a glimpse of him in Christ Jesus. And yet we'll always learn. So now fast forward from this uh, moment, several hundred years. Um, and then we look at Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah now is several hundred years in advance. And I just want to show you something in Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning in verse 20. We're just going to look down through verse 25. But beginning at verse 20. It says, You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, and in Israel and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. Verse 21, And you have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong arm, a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You have given them this land. Now remember, this is hundreds of years in advance to what we're reading tonight. And you have given them a land, verse 22, this is Jeremiah 32, verse 22. You have given them, God, this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 23, it says, And they came in and they took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice and walked in your law. So even hundreds of years afterward, we know that the record is still true. They didn't obey God's voice. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have... You have caused all this calamity to come upon them. So Jeremiah was very much understanding that the Babylonians, who were literally on the doorsteps of Jerusalem as he was writing this, this passage in Jeremiah, God or Jeremiah knew that it was because of the rebellion of the, his people that, and, their, and their continued rebellion that all these things added up. God had come to the point where he's like, all right, I'm done. I must bring judgment. I must bring judgment. 
And then verse 24, he says, look, the siege mounds. And so here he's describing this siege mound right in front of the city of Jerusalem that the Babylonians have erected. And so he's looking at it as he's writing this. They have come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What, have you, spoke, what you have spoken has happened. Notice, what you have spoken, God, has happened. You told us that this was going to happen. These are the consequences of national sin. And so uh, Jeremiah was very understanding that they had it coming, and God was being faithful to who he said he is and his word. And you have said to me, verse 25, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses, yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. So notice that Jeremiah, even hundreds of years later, and after the children of Israel had come into the land and did not drive out God's enemies, is seeing the result of those decisions that were made. That's kind of uh, frightening, isn't it? That's kind of sobering uh, to consider. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than when somebody is telling you in advance something and you're hearing it, and perhaps you're hearing it for years, and then the time comes when that thing comes to pass and you're standing there shaking in your boots knowing that you've heard it, you've heard it, you've heard it over and over and over again, and such was the case. And really, there's, there, there's, there's nothing you can say to that. And, and that's, that's really hurtful. But the, only, but the blame is, is, was on the children of Israel, just as the blame is on us when we finally get caught and when we get caught in our sin and God has to bring, has to chasten us. And sometimes He has to do it publicly. He doesn't want to do it publicly, but sometimes if we're not careful and we're still trying to play games with them, sometimes God can and does expose people publicly. You see it um, happening to pastors, unfortunately, where He will cause a a pastor in a church to be called out publicly because of his infidelity or because of his money laundering or his love affair with money, whatever it may be. So go, let's go on to verse 3 in our text tonight. It says, Therefore, I said, I will not drive them out. So the angel of the Lord is saying, Therefore, because of this, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. And, and so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and they wept. That's why they called the place Bokim because in the Hebrew the word means weeping or weepers because they cried and they cried. Now notice that when they were confronted they wept but unfortunately it didn't change their hearts. It, 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 this, this, this sorrow of theirs did not result in repentance or obedience. And see, I think this is where America is. I think this is where America is and where America needs to turn from its sin. Corporately in America, we know that there is an abundance of sin on our hands. There's abundance of things that we've done, just even with aborted babies. That alone, there is so much that uh, people in America have done. And, um, but let us not be like the children of Israel in this book. You know, they were sorry for their sins. But again, they cried out and God delivered them in His grace and mercy, but it didn't really change their heart. It really didn't bring them to repentance. And I'm certainly not saying that what we're going through right now is, uh, is God's judgment. That's not for me to know. But I will say that it is getting our attention, isn't it? It is getting our attention. Because it's not just something that is happening to the United States. It's something that's happening to the entire world. The entire world is going through this. So it's not just us. But God has His way in the whirlwind, as the Bible says. 
He has his way. And when he allows something like this to happen on such a global scale, he's really shaking the trees. He's really sifting nations and he's sifting people. And even with us in the church, it, it, it ought to bring about a gravity about our relationship with him. It ought to bring about, as it is in me, uh, a desire to really walk a life that is holy, to walk a life that is wholly separated unto him, separated from the world and separated to him. That's what I want to be. I know that's what you want as well. And that's why we're here together, because we all desire to please the Lord. So it's not for me to know what God's purposes are in what we're going through nationally right now. I don't have a clue. I know at the end of it, it's going to be positive. It may bruise us for a while. We may be um, hurting for a little bit, but God is going to have his way. And I pray that all of us, as a result, would just come a lot closer to him and that we'll put off those things that the Bible tells us putting off the old man and the deeds thereof, the fornication, the, the pride, the self-centeredness, the self-focus. And even in a marriage, there's so much there within a marriage about selfishness. Even in my own marriage with Kathy, you know, I can be really selfish and I can be really self-focused. And, and instead of serving my family and serving my wife, I can be looking out for my own flesh and looking out for me. And, and that just has to die. That's just not, it's unacceptable, right? supposed to lay down our lives for our families, men, to live lives that are holy to the Lord. And so, so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words uh, that all the children of Israel, they, they lifted up their voices and wept. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 because we're going to look at the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to pick up in verse 8. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to pick up in verse 8, and it says, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he wrote his first letter, and it was a very corrective letter, and it was very pointed. It really struck them hard, and it was a good thing. They needed uh, that kind of discipline. And Paul was God's instrument through which he was going to discipline this church. But Paul writes, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Okay, there's the difference. When sorrow is led to repentance, let me, let me just go on here. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces what? It produces repentance leading to salvation. But not, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So we have the sorrow of, we have godly sorrow and we have worldly sorrow. He says, for I observe this very thing that you were sorrowful, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. So when, when there was a real desire to repent, notice what he says. He says, what diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So Paul was saying it produced in you those elements of, of, of repentance that were necessary. And it proved itself. And, and, and the way that you responded, you, you quickly turned, and it was a, a genuine act. It wasn't just 
giving lip service. We all know what that is. You can you can say I'm go- I'm not going to do it again. Husbands, you know this with your wives. You can you can tell them all the time. You know I'm not going to. Um, I'll make sure that I take out the garbage on Monday night. I'll, I'll always do it, honey. I'll always do it. And how many times are we sitting there on the couch with something to drink, and it's getting nine o'clock, and your wife says. Um, it's time for the garbage to go out, right? Oh, I forgot. And if she hadn't said anything, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have done it, right? So, but notice, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I write to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So there is a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Again, and this is what the children of Israel were going through. It wasn't, it was not a godly sorrow. It was a worldly sorrow. They got caught. This angel of the Lord comes to them. They get caught and the angel tells them, you should have known this and why didn't you do it? This is what I told you to do and why is it that you haven't done it? And so just like a child being caught with the cookie jar, you know, in their hand when you told them not to put their hands in the cookie jar, they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar and, and they start crying because they got caught. And they didn't like what had happened. You know, it was uh, the worldly sorrow uh, was despairing and it was bitter and ultimately it leads to death. And we know that Judas is a great example of that. It says that after Judas betrayed Jesus, that he ultimately went back into the temple and threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple. But notice what it produced in him. It wasn't really a genuine repentance because had he repented, Jesus would have received him I believe if his heart was right, but he went and he hung himself and he was still unrepentant. There was no repentance in him. He was only selfish and he was uh, sorrowful because he got caught and he realized that. But there was no repentance. One gentleman said that repentance is not merely a change of purpose, but includes a change of heart which leads to a turning from sin with grief and hatred thereof to God. And so that's really what it is. It's when you really hate what's inside of you. When you really hate the sin enough, you'll, when you turn from it, when you really hate it like God hates it, only then are you going to turn from it. But as long as you coddle it, as long as you love it, you're probably not going to turn from it. And so that's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And the children of Israel were very much into the worldly sorrow. They got caught, and the angel busted them on this. So in verse 5, Then they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weeping. And notice, and they sacrificed to the Lord. They sacrificed to Jehovah. And then verse 6, And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. And so, and this is where Joshua made the covenant. If you look, uh, you don't, don't go there now, but just make a note in, the, in your Bible, in the margin, Joshua chapter 24, because Joshua gives them and writes down this covenant for them, and uh, and they make a covenant with God at that time, and they say we're going to serve Him, we're going to we're going to follow the law, and we're going to do the right things, and that's written for us in, in Joshua 24. But let's go on to verse seven now. It says, "So the people notice this is this is a, a horrible thing. <laughs> so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which He had done for Israel." Now these were the elders uh, in their midst, and people and people uh, looked up to them. But when they were gone, 
they began creeping into sin. So after Joshua died and all those men that were uh, uh, um, uh, during that time that he lived too that were contemporary with him, once they all died, then the children went and played. And really that's what this is. It's sort of like a, uh, a parent leaving his house with two teenagers in the house and saying to them, your mom and dad, uh, your mom and uh, your mother and I are going to be leaving for the weekend and I want you two boys, and they're teenage boys, I want you two boys to you know, take care of the house and mow the grass and you have your chores and do your schoolwork and all that stuff. We'll see you guys on Monday. And then for the, the kids, once the parents leave, to just um, once the, the patriarch, once the authority has left the building, now it's time for the children to play. And, um, and I know this in my own life because before Christ, I did the same thing. And I got busted. And perhaps you can recall an event like that in your own life. But see, see, if we are not careful, we can imitate those whom the Lord has warned us against. We can, we can do the exact same thing. Because what we have here is, it, it, it's not long when we, when we become a friend of the world, what's the very next thing that happens when we're a friend of the world? We become spotted by the world. And that, uh, it's recorded for us in James 1 verse 27. And then, if, and then the next step is that we love the world, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. And then we're finally, uh, because we love the world, now we're conforming to the world, and it talks about that in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And then finally, we may, if, if we haven't repented and come to Christ, ultimately what could happen is that we could be condemned with the world. Condemned with the world. Now, no true believer is condemned, um, but... If you're not a believer and you're playing games with God, uh, there's, there is a stepping stone. There is a progression of sin. And we see the very same thing in Psalm verse 1. You recall what it says. It says, Blessed is he who walks in the counsel, walks not, I'm sorry, in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You've heard this before, but notice, walks, and then stands, and then sits. You can see how, so when somebody's walking, and they're walking in the way uh, of the counsel of the ungodly. And then what's the next thing that happens? They stop what they're doing, and then they're standing in the way, uh, in the path of sinners. So their mobility is, uh, they're slowing down, and they're becoming more solidified in the sin. So they're walking, now they're standing, and then ultimately what's the next step? They sit. They become one with it. And then their doom comes upon them. And that's just the way it is. And that's the way it really was with the children of Israel. There were always these progressions of sin, and they're that way in our own life. But let's go on to verse 8 now in our text tonight. It says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. So he was an old man, 110 years old. Can you imagine? I can't imagine living 110 years old. There was a man across the street from me who lived to be 104. And uh, just a couple of weeks before he died, he was out mowing the grass. Uh, no kidding, he was out there on a riding lawnmower mowing his grass. And so that was pretty amazing. But, but Joshua died when he was 110. And notice, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. Now remember, um, Joshua was, an, uh, was born from Ephraim. That's the tribe that he was born in. And so he's buried in that place very naturally. Now notice verse 10, and this is where it gets ugly again, uh, and the warning is here too. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord 
or the work which he had done for Israel. And, and, and it's true, they, they, for all along the way they were, they were floundering and they weren't doing what they, were, they should be doing. And God told them what they needed to do. And in fact, one of the things that they were supposed to do every seven years is they were to read the entire book of the law to all the, all the, all the inhabitants. They were to read it before all the children of Israel. And, and they're supposed to gather together. It's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 31, uh, verses 9 through 13. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 through 13. We're not going to go there, but you can read that. And it's basically just God outlining at the end of the seven years of their Feast of Tabernacles, they were to get together and they were to be read the entire book of the law. And had they done that faithfully, they probably would have had uh, more resolve to do the right thing. They probably would have taught their kids uh, the truth uh, concerning the things that had happened nationally in their lives. Because as time is going on, children are being born and they're growing up. And the things of the past that God had done are slowly growing distant. But had the children of Israel been faithful to what was recorded in Deuteronomy 31 by reading that law every seven years, they would have been, and of course they did it on, you know, when they got together in, um, in their tents, they would, and, 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 and daily perhaps, as they would stand at the, at the tabernacle, they would hear the word of God. And they had no, um, they really had no excuse, really, but notice, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, didn't know the Lord, nor the work which He had done for Israel. And think about all the great things that God had done for them. I mean, bringing them out of, uh, out of Israel, or out of Egypt, I'm sorry, leading several uh, hundreds of thousands, a couple million people actually, leading them through the desert and providing for them food and water for 40 years in the desert. That's unheard of. It's unthinkable, <laughs> and it's, it's not probable, <laughs> you know, but God did it. He did it. And, you know, again, this is where I believe America is right now because generations have arose that do, that do not know the Lord. There have been parents that have grown up, uh, and their grandparents knew the Lord, and, and there came a point where as they were growing up and becoming adults that they somehow got to that place where I'm happy and content with my life. I got my job. I got my money. I got my, my Ford F-250. I've got my, my big camper that we can take on the weekends. I've got my 401K. I've got all my ducks in the row, and yet they're missing the most important thing. And then materialism creeps in, and there's no room for God anymore. Uh, and, and now, you know, and that's where America has gotten. We, we've, we've, we've kicked him out of the schools, out of the public school system. And, and so now, you know, you have a generation growing up. And this is true. Right now, there are kids in the public schools who've never heard the name Jesus Christ. It, it, his name is becoming so faint now that there, m most men who don't know the Lord aren't even using it as a swear word anymore. They're not even using Jesus Christ as a swear word. So there's so many kids who don't even know who Jesus is. So the young men and the young women of the more recent generations, they've grown up in schools that no longer teach the Word of God. And instead, they fill their minds with revised history. They fill their minds with evolution and they coddle everything of their flesh, every, every desire of the flesh. They're no longer encouraged abstinence, but instead they're handed condoms. They're given uh, birth control pills. And now the, the schools have more authority over your child than you do. And folks, parents, it's time for you to get your authority back.
It's time for you to, to be vocal and go in there with, you know, two or three with you at a time, make an appointment with the principal. I mean, don't gang up on the poor person, but, you know, you're, you're there and, and, and have set up something where every, every, every week there's somebody going into a, a public school who has a child there and, and talking to the principal and, and being that dripping water, um, that squeaky wheel, and encourage them to consider these things. Pray for them. We don't go in there and just bash them over the head with a Bible. We go in there with love, but you tell them the truth, and that can be done in a civil way. That can be done in a civil way. So we need to, uh, and one of the things I like about this verse too, as we look here, um, when all the generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work one of the things I, I like about this verse, too, is the exhortation it is for discipleship because that's one of the things that's really, um, and it happens from time to time, but it's something that we need to be thinking about always and how to disciple younger people under us. And, you know, grandparents and mothers and fathers certainly uh, disciple your kids, disciple your grandkids. Don't ever give up on them. And, and, and for those of you who are younger, minister and disciple the younger underneath you. You know, that that's the way it needs to be. And we need to continue to disciple and to exhort so that we can be that, um, we can uphold and exemplify the truth of the Word of God. We can be those examples. We can be those ambassadors. We can be those um, uh, disciplers. And that people, and, and that um, there would just be a great change. Because if it doesn't happen, then this is what happens. Verse 10 is what happens in any society when the men, especially the men and the women, when we stop discipling our kids. We can teach them how to throw a baseball. We can teach them how to throw a football. We can teach them how to bowl. We can teach them many things. But are you teaching them and getting in the Word with them um, often, as often as you can? Make it a habit. First get in the Word yourself and then, and then get into the Word with your kids. Even if it's only 15 or 20 minutes a day, uh, do that. And that's something that I need to do more often too. And so it's something that's important for us. So let's go on to verse 11. It says, Then the children of Israel, here's another hurtful verse, then because there had been a generation uh, had, that had died and, and then the generation afterwards didn't uh, hear about the word and didn't know the works of the Lord, this is the, the result of that, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. There were many different deities in, in that uh, part of the country. Uh, Baal was the, the central god and uh, but they had different um, smaller gods that they worshipped. And see, the devil doesn't care um, how many different gods one worships as long as he can get you not to worship the one true God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one, one God. He, he, he doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to him what you serve. Just serve anything but Jesus Christ. And, and that's why God is jealous for his people. He's jealous for his people because he knows what's best for us. And no other God is jealous for you. No other God. That's why, you know, the, the, the God of Islam and the, the God of the Hindus and, 
the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses, he's not jealous over you, but there's one who's jealous over you because he knows what's best for you. He created you and he has a great plan for your life. But the other gods who are really not, not, nothing more than demonic spirits, they don't care. They don't have problems with each other because all they want to do is keep you away from the one thing because they know, they believe God, they know who He is. They, they're not submitted to Him, but they know who He is, better than most of us. They know that He's real. There's no doubt in their mind. That's why when Jesus was casting out those demons, what do those demons say? You know, they, they begged Him uh, you know, to not let them go and, and, and to not send them into the abyss. Isn't that what He said to the demoniac over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? The demon inside of Him, inside of the man and, and the tombs, don't cast us out into outer darkness. You know, don't judge us before the time. And Jesus had authority. He had authority over him. So verse 12, And they forsook the Lord, the God of the fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, notice, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, they forsook Jehovah, and they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. The Ashtoreths uh, were really these, um, uh, they were, uh, it was literally called a, a star is really what Ashtoreth is. It's a false goddess, goddesses in the, the area of Canaanite, in the, in, the Can, in the Canaanite area, in the Canaanite religion. And it was basically a fertility, a god of fertility, a goddess of fertility. And, and we can see in verse uh, 13 here that they forsook Jehovah and they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And this is actually why they were led captive in 722, the northern ten tribes. And then in 606, you know, the Babylonians came for the, for the Judeans or for the, um, the, um, the, those in Jerusalem. But let's go on to verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And that word hot literally means what it means. He was very... Uh, very angry against Israel. And so he delivered them, notice, into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of all their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And wherever they went out, verse 15, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said. Now, the Lord did say this. And where did he say it? Specifically, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 is at least one place where he spoke this. We don't have time to go there, but I would encourage you tonight or tomorrow to review your notes and maybe write Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's a chapter about blessings and cursings, and God was basically speaking uh, to them concerning these things because he did tell them, and, and, and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. And so verse 16, uh, when we look at verse 16 down through verse 19, this is the cycle that was continuing to happen over and over again. In fact, in the book of Judges, we're going to see this happening seven different times, this pattern. And just mark it off with a little hash mark, verse 16 down through verse 19, because this is what began to perpetuate over and over and over again. That's why it's like a roller coaster. You know, this is what happened. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods. They had spiritual adultery, and, instead of, and they were also involved in physical adultery too. Notice that they bowed down to them, and they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. Notice, they didn't do it. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. 
and he delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And notice, and it came to pass that when the judge was dead, that the children began to play again. <laughs> That's the... Uh, uh, it goes on, it says, that they reverted and they behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And so verses 16 through 19 is the perpetual thing that we see and we're going to see over and over again. And that can be really discouraging and that's why it's so important that we don't get into that place. And that's why I, uh, I prefaced uh, tonight's message with this idea of what we're going through as a country. You know, to, to take this challenge that we have before us. It kind of has, has hurt many people and got us, got us kind of scared maybe a little bit and we're certainly considering things. Let it do that. Let it do that work if it's going to bring a godly repentance, if it's going to bring forth godly sorrow out of something that maybe we've been playing games with. Um, it's, it's, a good, it's always a good time to turn from those things, but especially in a time like this, it's a good uh, opportunity for us to say, you know what, Lord, I've been playing games with you for 20 years. Lord, I've been playing games with you in my marriage. Uh, I haven't been treating my wife the way I, I, I'm supposed to. Lord, I've been stealing from the workplace uh, for a long time and nobody's seen it. It's such a small amount that not even my boss is aware of it. And yet you know that I'm doing it and I know that I'm doing it. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I've got this problem of anger. I've got this problem of alcohol. I've got this problem of pornography. I've got this problem of unforgiveness. Whatever it is, now is a good time to take stock in it, that we don't become like this. That's why the Bible says that the Word of God is there for our nurture and for our admonition. It's there to teach us something and it would behoove us to learn from it so that we don't continue to perpetuate these things that we have read tonight and that we're going to continue to read. Let's go on to verse 20. It says, Then the anger of the Lord, we're almost done here, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. In fact, this, uh, this phrase, was hot against Israel, uh, actually occurs, um, uh, let me see, it happens four different times in the book of Judges. Uh, this phrase that God, his anger was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I will also, and here's the, 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 the unfortunate thing, because they've not done what they're supposed to do, I will also, this is one of those conditional statements that we talk about in the Bible, these if-then statements. If they do this, then God will do this. And this is another one of those things. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers and they have not heeded my voice I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep my ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not now this is an interesting thing when the Lord tests us he doesn't he doesn't tempt us, but God can test us. And the reason why God tests us is because He wants us to see where we're really at with Him. He already knows the answer. When God tests, even though the language in the Bible makes it sound like and God tested them to see whether they would do a certain thing, well, guess what? You can read Psalm 139. God is omniscient. He already knows the end from the beginning. So He already knows the answers. But we don't know the answer. 
and I don't know my own heart, and God has to allow me to go through a test. It's that one phrase that, we, that, that I've used before, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And so when He puts me through the test, when He allows tests in my life, it's never to destroy me, but it's always to help me to understand where I really am. And it's a good question, where am I? Maybe you can ask yourself that question tonight. Lord, really, where am I with you? You know, when this thing, when this coronavirus hit, I was running for the hills. You know, maybe you were, you were panicked and freaking out. And, and maybe you were running to the store and buying, you know, stuffing your car full of toilet paper. You know, maybe you were one of those people. You know, maybe you're one of those people just buying up everything you can. Buy, you know, just taking the, all the canned goods and just pushing them into your, into your cart and, and, and going up to the scanner and scanning for 12 days. You know, were you one of those people? We don't need to fear like that, you know. And times like this bring out really where we're at, doesn't it? And we don't need to be uh, condemned because of what we have done. I, you know, we bought a little extra toilet paper, I'll be honest with you. But, uh, you know, uh, we didn't buy hordes of it. But the thing is, is we find out really where we're at in calamities and distresses and turmoils like this. But God is testing them. Again, He knows the answer, but they don't know the answer. They need to know what is happening and so God allows these things to prove us. That's a great word. He uses it to, pr to prove us. He already knows the answer. He knows what we're going to do. He knows what's within us. And He already has made a provision for when we fail. And I love that about the Lord too. So God proves or tests us and even chastens us in, 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 in an instructive way to correct us. But He never, ever tempts us. Isn't that what it says in James? Uh, about a year and a half, almost two years ago, we, we, we were in the book of James. What does it say in verse 13 of chapter 1? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. So God never tempts us. The devil he allows. He allows the devil to tempt us only when it's going to bring a good fruit in our life. But God tests us. He proves us. Because he already knows. But we need to know. I need to know really what I'm made of. I really need to, I need to, I need to understand where I'm at. Am I really walking with the Lord? You know, I can boast a big game. I can say, oh, I'm, you know, I got, I got this much faith. But that guy over there, he's, he doesn't even have any. But I got this much faith. And God is going, hmm. I know how much faith you've got, Rob, and it's not very much. In fact, I'm going to allow something in your life to prove to you. I already know where your faith is, but I'm going to allow something to happen to show you how small your faith really is. And does God do that to break me? No. Well, to break me of my sin, certainly, but He doesn't do it to hurt me and to harm me in a, in a, in a, in a, in a nasty way. But He chastens me because He chastens those whom He loves. If we are not chastened by the Lord, then we are illegitimate children. But we are the children of God, and so He does it for our instruction, for our good. And I love that about the Lord. Therefore, the Lord, verse 23, left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did He deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Now, let's go over the verse, uh, just verses uh, 1 through 6 really quickly, and then we'll be done, because when we get into verse 7, that's really when 
uh, the book of Judges really begins, uh, in a sense. So notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, uh, the nations remaining in the land. So now these are the nations which the Lord left, and he, that he might again test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. And this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, and from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might again test them. God is using these things to test them. So now because of their disobedience, God's going to allow them to be tested, to be proven, to see whether they're going to follow him or not. And that's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Would to God that they weren't ever in that position, but now there they are. They're, they're, they're in that place, and God is going to use their enemies to prove them, to prove them. And so they, and there they were left that he might test Israel by them, verse 4, to know. Now again, this is one of those funny passages. It sounds like God doesn't know really what's happening here, but he really does. It's so that they might know, and that it'll be shown, and it'll be written, in a sense, in the annals, in the, in the books. And Because and, once it happens, then God can say, I gave you every opportunity, and this is what you did. God knew what was going to happen. So they were left, that he might test them, test Israel by them, to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel, verse 5, dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They weren't supposed to be living among them. They were supposed to destroy them, but now there they are because of their disobedience, because of their lack of, uh, of trust in the Lord and the trust of the Lord in them to, to accomplish that work. Notice what happened, verse 6, And they took their daughters to be their wives, and unfortunately they gave their daughters to their sons. And notice, the worst sentence of all, and they served their gods. They served the gods of those nations. And so we're going to stop there tonight, but what an awful commentary of, uh, of a people. You know, that God was directing. And, and before we get too hard on the Jews, the fact of the matter is, is that if we were in that place, we would do the same thing. So we can't look at the Jewish people and say, you know, they're, they're just inherently bad. And there are people like Hitler and Mussolini and others who have tried to make the Jews to be the, the, the bane of everyone's existence. So they're no different than we are. They, they have the same heart as we do. They have the same issues that we do. They have the same everything. God fashions their hearts alike, and we are all the same in that regard. And so let's, um, you know, let's take these things that we read tonight and take them to heart and, um, and really draw near to the Lord and, and really ask the Lord and be prayerful. Say, Lord, I, I don't want to be the way I, I was. You know, before this coronavirus started coming to pass, Lord, I don't, when this is all over with, I want to be different on the other side of this. Make the commitment in your heart. Don't make a vow or anything like that. Just be simple. Just make, make it be godly sorrow over anything, if there's anything in your heart. And if, if you're listening tonight and you haven't given your heart to Jesus, I would encourage you to do that. You know how simple it is to receive Christ? It's, it's, just, it's as simple as just crying out to Him and saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've sinned. And I know that you paid the price, Jesus. You're, you are God in the flesh and you hung on the cross. Your holy blood was shed instead of my blood because the, sin that so, the soul that sins shall surely die, the Bible says. And instead of me dying, which I deserve, you, Jesus, God in the flesh, you paid the price for me. And I believe in what you did. I believe that 
um, to be absent. Uh, or I, I believe that um, that you paid the price, and that if I believe and put my heart and my trust in you, I know that I will be in heaven. I know that I'll not only be in heaven, but I'll also have even joy, even on this side of life. Before I physically die, I'm going to have a wonderful, blessed life. And I can tell you, if you're here tonight and you're listening and you haven't made that commitment, make that commitment tonight before you go to bed. Don't put your head on the pillow yet. Ask the Lord. Say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, cleanse me. And I want you, Jesus. I want you to fill me with your spirit. I want to replace this old dead spirit of mine, and I want you to replace it with your Holy Spirit Take up residence in my heart and change me forever. I am yours completely. And then read the Word of God and let Him love on you. Let Him give you the deliverance that you've always desired. You don't need to take pills. You don't need to drink. You don't need to search for another lover. Believe me, all of the things of our flesh can be satisfied in being right with God, having that right relationship with Him, to be clean in His sight, and to know that He has cleansed you from all of your sin all the sin of your past and even all the sin that you have yet to commit, He will change your life. And so do that tonight. Give your heart to Jesus Christ. And for those of you Christians who are here, let this be a, a, a wonderful wake-up call for us that as we, as we read these passages, let it be something that you're saying, Lord, tonight I don't want to be the same tomorrow. I want to do business with you tonight, Lord. I want to ask you to forgive me and cleanse me, so please heal me and restore me and renew me and use me again, Lord. I love that song that we sing, Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the Living God, um, fall afresh on me. And then the chorus says, melt me and then mold me and then fill me and then use me. Notice the progression. First, I have to be melted Melt me and then mold me. Shape me into something that you've created, you've designed for my life, because you know what my life should be like. And then fill me with your spirit. Fill me completely, overflowing. And then finally, as a result of being filled, now use me for your glory. And what a wonderful thing that is, isn't it? And I can tell you it's the greatest thing you'll ever do. The greatest thing you will ever do is to give your heart even to Jesus Christ. And for those of us who know him, to give him even more. The more we give him, the better we're going to be. We're going to be blessed. And so let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and pray that, Lord, you'd bless my brothers and my sisters, Lord. And Father, for those maybe who gave their heart to you and rededicated their life to you tonight, Lord, we pray that you'd welcome them into the kingdom and that, Lord, you would do that great work that you did in my life and in all of our lives, most of our lives, hopefully all of our lives. Renew us and, and continue to cleanse us, Lord, and help us to be those ambassadors for you, Lord. Help us to be joyful, Lord. Lift our heads, Lord, and help us to be looking up, knowing that our redemption draws near, Lord, because you are coming for us very soon. We don't know the day or the hour, but we long for it. And so, Lord, have your way with us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Men.